Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting day in What's New in Wagyu. Today we're going to answer a couple questions that were given to me over the last few months. And one of those have been, can you kind of relate the original importers of Wagyu? And kind of when everything came to be. So today we're going to talk about that. So it is said that there was only 167 black wagyu known to have been exported from Japan and imported into the United States. From this, 21 calves registered from AI sires were born after arriving to, with these heifers. In the red wagyu world, there were only 16 bulls and heifers ever exported. Six registered births resulted in this, and this has allowed for about 221 wagyu cattle to be brought from Japan to the United States. And this all happened in a few migrations. You know, the weird part to me is is that the migrations happened early on in the 70s, and then, then again in the 90s really quickly. You know, so let's talk about some of the original stuff that came in. So we're talking about Judo, Rusha, uh, Mount Fuji, and Mazda. And those were all imported in 1976. Um, Mr. Morris Whitney did that. And when he brought them here, they ended up all at Colorado State University. And Colorado State took semen. And then they were bought by a company called Wagyu Breeders Incorporated. And the weird thing about these boys are, is that they pretty much bred these cows to every mutt they could find. It didn't matter. Like, they literally joined them to any breed at any time. Anything from Angus's to Holsteins to Brangus cattle. And at that time, there were no so, no full-blood females. So anything that was created during this infax was pretty much just a cow that had high percentage. You know, they were getting up there into the 63, 64ths at this time. And, you know, when the second importation happened in the 90s, there were less than 300 Wagyu crossbred females in the country. And that's of animals that were three-quarter Wagyu or higher. You know, and then... You know, the weird thing was uh, they got some semen in early 91 and it widened that gap a little bit. And the fifth bull they got in was Itohana and no, Ito, Itotan, Itotani. Sorry, I am terrible today with this. And it was brought to Canada uh, by Lakeside Industries. And that's kind of a cool deal there because then they opened up that space. So now we had four bulls. Now now we had three blacks and two reds with uh, Itotani. And I, I haven't seen hardly any semen from him. Uh, I've heard of it, but I've never actually heard of anyone having original semen from him. So the kind of cool deal is um, these fourth generation animals allowed them to push these cattle to 15 sixteenths and obtain your really first 93.75 Wagyu genetic. And that's cool because at that time there, there was nothing else. Like you had crossbed cattle that were technically purebreds at that point in our, in our standards today. And people didn't, didn't really have any other options. So the Manic Group in early part of 93 started looking at, you know, well, they, they started before, but they imported in early 93. So I want you to remember the Manic Group later became World K. And at that time, in, in 1993, they got permission to import three black Wagyu females. And this is where Suzatani, Rikatani, and Okatani all came in. 
And I want you to remember these things because it's important. So, um, Suzatani and Rikitani were both Tajima cattle. Like 100%, they were full Tajima bred. And, and that's what brought them here. Like they wanted that full Tajima line because at that time that was the cream of the crop in Japan. Now, Okatani's a little different. You know, she's about 75% Tajima and about 25% Shemaine. And, and I think that they did this to kind of have a little different influx by not just importing straight Tajima line. At this time, two bulls came in, Michifuku and Haruki too. And, and that was really the first full bloods um, brought here female-wise. And they brought some pretty cool stuff because when they were brought here, um, the first full bloods to be born outside of Japan uh, were the second generation embryos. And they were all by Haruki too. And they were all in Canada. And this happened, you know, in June of 94. And from this, this is what happened. So these, this first generation of animals born outside of Japan to Haruki 2, you get the great names of Rikitani and Jinjiro and Okatani. And these, were, these animals were all born in June. Uh, Okaharuo following, you know, he followed right after him. And then, to be honest with you, the first full-blood calf born in the U.S. was Fukio. And Benjiro, and sh and they came from Okatani, uh, you know, and that's kind of a cool deal. So technically, the Canadians were, you know, a little ahead of us on getting these animals on the ground. Um, it is what it is, right? You know, th these animals, according to to what research you can find, were born on the twenty third of June, and the American animals were born on the twenty fourth of June. So, and this whole happened back in ninety four. Um, later that year, some more live exports were transported from the U.S. to Australia, and, and that's kind of where you get the Australian group starting up. Um, it's kind of cool because they all went to Wally Ray in Australia. So the Amanic group then imported four black fe imported four black females after that: Okahana, uh, Nakagashi Five, Kenatani, and Nakanu Nakayuki. And two more black bulls, and that's where Kenahana Fuji and Takazurka, Taka Zurakara, in '94 also came from. These calves were born after they were um, brought here, I guess. Um, in this consignment, that's when the Akushi boys, um, the Red Wagyu, came here. Uh, they were consigned and imported by Dr. Alan Marie Wood. And these selections were kind of interesting because there were two people that selected for Dr. Al and Marie. Um, Yoki Kurosawa and Dr. King. Um, and they went to Komodo Prefecture and they brought us nine females. And everybody in the, in the Wagyu world, or at least in the, in the Red Wagyu world, uh, that's kind of a, a weird deal because there's so few Reds that were ever brought here that everybody kind of knows the, the family lines. Are, and if you don't, you probably should spend some time doing that. Uh, you know, back then you get the Namiko, the Yume, the, Na the Naome, the Akiko, Haruko, Fukio, and Dai 3, Dai 9, and Dai 8. And at that time, that's where you get the three Red Bulls, Shug, Shug Maru, Tamaru, and Hakari. 
And the interesting thing about this is, is that they a lot of these females were were bred in Japan uh, to the AI sire of Namaru and Daiten Mitsumaru. Uh, from these breedings, this is where you get Big Al and Katamaru and Mama Gr- Mama Mom Agamaru and Five O Four and Five O Five, which you know a lot of people haven't even been able to breed around Five O Four and Five O Five, and Five O Four is probably one of my favorite lines to breed to. Uh, one of my, I believe they have probably the best maternal lines within the original animals, and the reason I say this is is. I have some 504 lined animals and they usually give me my best collections. I'm not really sure kind of how those things work. Um, I know they're very heritable, but I will tell you that my 504, 505 prod and they're not direct progeny, right? They're great grandsire dams on the, on the side that, that we're getting amazing embryo results from these animals. So kind of an interesting thing. Um, after about 180 days in quarantine, you know, Naomi Dai 3, Katamaru, and Mamaguru went to Ontario. Um, I'm not sure where they landed. I would assume Wagyu Sakai had them at this time. Um, and then the remainder of the red cows were sold to Inglewood Farms, which is owned by Alan Marie Wood in Texas. Um, subsequently, after that, Hartbrand purchased Alan Marie Wood's stent, and, and that's where you're sitting with the original Heartbrand stuff and that and that happened you know 26 27 2006 2007 a lot of people don't really understand that that they the people who currently own Heartbrand weren't the importers of the cattle you know and then then comes along japanese japanese venture partners they got together and they brought us in some three black bulls and this is where you get kikiyatsu and fukazura and yasutani and then they brought some females, and this is kind of where it gets a little muddy in the waters. Um, they brought in 10 females at the time, and two red heifers. And in the red world, these are the two heifers that aren't seen an awful lot. Uh, I'm not sure why, whether they didn't just make sure there was a lot of embryos collected, or, or if they did the embryo work at all, because they had these black cattle on top of it. And Kunaseki and 27 Hamare came in from the red lines here. And and I think that it's really important to know that, that that builds out the last of the reds. Like, there was no more importation after this. So this is where all of the red cattle have come from. So by 1994, all the red cattle were, are in the United States, and they're sitting there uh, becoming used in different breeding strategies and patterns, owned really by three different people. And these things are getting sent overseas to Australia. You know, embryos are because they're trying to build a herd there. And it's quite amazing to me how quickly they were able to just capitalize on all this early investment and make their money back and and be able to build beautiful programs like they have today. So back to Japanese Venture Partners. So they imported uh, the 10 black females. Uh, I'm going to use their, their code number because it's easier than their name. This is where 662 comes from, 992, 990, 298, 208, 486. Um, Yasafuji 1x4, Yasafu- Yoshifuku 2, Yuriko 1, and two. And again, I said like the two red heifers. Mr. Shogun Takeda exported 35 females at this time. Many of these females were in calf and five bulls. 
So these five bulls are, not, are you know, we're, we're talking about these mainframe big-time bulls that everybody talks about. So this is where Itamichi 1 by 2 comes from, Kikohana comes from, Itohana comes from, Tukinto and Torrington. And these are all brought in by in 94. Manic Group turns around, which is, again, remember, is a world is world K, and brought in seven females. And this is the bull sections that they brought in, and everybody forgets this. And when we're talking 94, right, they brought one bull in 94, and that bull was Yasufuku Jr. And, and the cool thing is about this import from Manit, and, and the, the biggest name that stands out in this import of, of these seven black females is this is where Hasako came from. This is when she was imported from Japan to the United States. And and with Yasufuku Jr. coming in at that time, it, it makes it amazing. Uh, in '97, this is where Kosen comes from, and Tokuchimichi and, and that. So Chris Walker of Westinghome Farms. Now we're talking Canada. Remember, imported 25 females and three black males at this time, and this is where the Westinghome group comes from. So this is where your 01, 02, 03. Um, these three bulls were imported at that time, and, and you're talking 1997 here, guys. Um, and and a lot of people don't realize that um, that yeah, it was brought in in '94, but the final the final bring-ins weren't till late '90s, and and it's hard because people don't understand that. So. Um, and, rem and here's the other part. Chris Walker, when he imported these, um, he imported these three black bulls that everybody knows. Uh, 01, 02, 03. And they came to the U.S. from, you know, from ET Japan Company in Hokkaido in 97. And then in 1998, he brought 59 females with semen and three more black bulls. And this is where Shugafuku comes, Dai Six comes, and Kikozuri comes from. And those bulls right there are some of the most sought-after semen in, in the country right now because it's so little was ever was ever produced, A, in the world of things, right? Today we look at these Angus bulls, and they're doing millions upon millions of straws. That's not the case with these bulls. Oh, one, oh, two, and oh, three, um, they're probably the most heavily bulls used in Australia. And that's where most of that semen went. So out of 84 females, 63 were pregnant on this import. And everybody forgets that, too. The bulls 001, 002, and 03 were the heavily used bulls, and then they were sent to Australia. And, and the females, um, they were exported, um, Why 004, 005, and 06 were still in use heavily in the United States. These dams, uh, they were bred and, and sent over, and this is really where the base of this amazing programs out of, out of Australia come from. You know, after this, in late 97, 98, Takeda Farms imported six black bulls again. Uh, Kikasuri Daio, Ido Shugafuji, Ido Shuganami, Mitsukake, uh, and 151 Itozero Doi came in at this time. Uh, they all came to the United States. And then Takeda Farms, um, they decided at this time that it was time to disperse their U.S. and Canadian holdings, and, and they did at this time. And, and it was a good move by them because they picked kind of the top of the list. Um, they, they really figured out a good time to capitalize on the money that, that they were making. Um, 
So Dr. Simon Coates in Australia, uh, everybody knows of, of, of Dr. Simon Coates. He's kind of, you know, the pioneer for sumo wagyu. And um, he bought the herd, the Australian herd from Mr. Takeda. And then um, he complemented the embryos. He imported six females. And together with Takeda Farms, they formed the basis of the industry in Australia. So, you know, you have the Westingholm, you have the Takeda Farms, and, and so, you know, Dr. Simon Coates and the Westingholm's uh, direct competition, right, to build a bigger and better Wagyu, and, and, and it's paid off for them. Uh, Takeda Farms herd in the U.S. was sold to Gary Yamamoto in Canada, and, you know, it's kind of been just how it is. Like, you know, you're seeing less and less of these original animals, and they're getting harder and harder to find. And, and one thing you're going to realize, um, some of these sires were heavily used, and some of them weren't used at all. And some of them are extremely used in, in Australia, and you might not even see any here. Um, you know, Kiko Siradoi, you know, you, you have very little registrations. Um, so this would be 146. You have very, very limited registrations in the United States, but they use them, you know, fairly consistently in Australian breedings. Oh, three is the same way. You know, you start looking at oh three, they have thousands and thousands of registered, you know, calves from him. But here in the United States, we have very little. You know, Sugafuku's kind of had a had a lull, but but he's coming back. You know, and that's kind of interesting to me that. Bulls like that are just, are just not, I don't know, are not utilized here in the United States. So, so let's be honest about it. So, you know, in Australia, they dwarf us in Ido Shogunami sons. They dwarf us in 151 sons. If you were to go in and look at the registration numbers, you know, they really have beat us on registrations of full-blood animals and the biggest jumps are Ido Shogunami, Ido, Shigafu, Ido Shigafuji, uh, 003, Michifuku, like they're they're registering 20 times to one what we're registering. You know, 001's the same way, Ido Honda 2, Ido Michi 1 by 2, you know, they're just, you know, th those are the foundation groups that they really love and they've really used. And it's been interesting to me that, um, you know, it's, I don't know. They say that right now that about 15% of all Wagyu in Australia have some mating back to Yudoshiganami. You know, they're around 13%, say, Michifuku breedings. You know, that tells you how heavily they've used these bulls, uh, you know, Ido Sugafuji, they, they say, is around just under 10%. And, and it's weird that, you know, if you look at their quality and products they're bringing in, their F1 programs and everything else, that we're not we're not looking at these trends over here. We're just breeding blindly into the wind. I'm not saying EBVs are, like, the greatest thing on earth, but come on, guys. They've, they've got a program that's really, you know, moving things forward, and and it's just, I don't know. It's just interesting to me, you know, and there, there's a lot of research out there on not only genetics, but genetics and feeding and creating the perfect, the perfect mixture to make your, your animals the best. And I'll tell you a secret right now, we feed our red cattle and our black cattle the same, like it might be on a, on a less day portion, right? Like we might have them less days, but you know, 
I hate to say this, I think that, that people don't understand that, that you need to have genetics, you need to have the ability to, to produce quality genetics, and then you have to be able to feed them well enough to make those genetics that they do have stand out. And then here's the big thing, guys, we have to have some time. Like, like we have to have some time on these calves to make beautiful carcasses. And, and I'll tell you right now that we, we've got to the point now that our goal is somewhere around one pound per day. Our average daily gain is one pound per day. I would rather them gain one pound per day and I kill them at 36 months or 35 months and I get a carcass that is absolutely phenomenal than trying to push these animals and screw it all up. You know, and, and getting these animals on feet early is actually way more important than most people realize. You know, and the problem is, is, you know, we just talked about these early genetics. Well, don't screw them up when you get these early genetics or you get genetics that you love and you know that work. Don't screw them up by feeding them improperly. You cannot win by not managing your time, not managing your feed, not managing your animal and not managing their maturity level. You know, I. I will tell you that, that the Kikiyasu 400s, I have to push to that 35 months no matter what. Itomichi 1 by 2 is the same way. If I'm not at that 35 plus months, I do not get good programming. You know, and that's, that's uh, uh, I don't know, right or wrong, but, but Ichi, you know, Ichi, you can run him 27 months. I've got some great carcasses at 27 months, and I think that it's due to his early maturing. You know, and, and the sad part is, is we measure everything, right? Like, I, I kind of have an idea what days on feed are. I have an idea how long they've been on feed and kind of what we're feeding the amounts. And, you know, adjusted daily, you know, daily gain. The ones that do the best are right at that 0.92 days, you know, pounds per day to 0.1. If you, if you push them past that, you are, you're going to screw yourself in the long run. And... And that's, that's what people don't understand. And here's the deal. You've got to remember, you've got two different feedings. You've got a pre-feeding and then you've got a finish feeding. And I'm talking, when I say average, average daily gain, um, on per, uh, you know, I'm talking about pre-feeding. I'm not talking about your finish feed. I'm talking about when you put them in your feedlot and you're, you're planning on putting them there for 200, you know, for 600 days. So they're one, you're putting them in the feedlot and you know, they're going to be there for the next two years. You know, your pre-feeding, your early on feeding needs to be around that point one. Some of the best cattle that we have ever seen at the butcher shop, they're down to that 0.74, you know, average daily gain. Once they get into that, that high calorie, high caloric, um, feed for finishing. You know, I've seen some early 28 months, 003 carcasses and, and they're beautiful. I've seen some 29 month, you know, Ito sugar Fuji carcasses that I, I wondered if they were even Wagyu. But bulls like, you know, Ito Shiganami and 151 and, and, you know, Kikiyasu, you know, you need to push those carcasses all the way up to 36 months. Do not try to shortcut it. Do not. If you can go to 40 months and still make your money, you're better off than shortcutting it. 
And here's the other problem. Everybody has these, this thing is, I want this small cow with these huge loins. Well, I understand that, but, but there is value in, in other cattle with, with large weights at slaughter. Like, like there is a very big basis that, that's great on it, right? You know, I'm just going to give you, you know, a couple examples from, from some research that not only we've done, but we've matched it up to Blackmores in Australia and a few other people that have been kind enough to, you know, talk about these things. So, you know, we've got some of these major early sires broken down now, uh, you know, mathematically, right? We have hanging weights, we have the average daily gain, we have the amount of fat, you know, the EMAs and all those things. And then we've done and, and done something. Um, we went to MS9s and we wanted to know what percentage of them are we getting. And then how many, you know, score, an, you know, a, a meat score 9 plus. And, and we've had to use the Australian model. And the reason is, is because nobody else uses the Japanese model. So we had to go to the Australian model to have like data. Um you know, and, and David Blackmore's been great. You know, the, the, when we've requested information, we've always got good information. We've always got information from some of the other major breeders in the industry. Usually have to go to Australia to get it because nobody else keeps track of it here in the United States. But that's okay. Like, like it's not that big a deal. Um, you know, and, and that's that's the things I keep trying to explain to people is we've got to keep data better. And we've got to have it in a place where you can get a hold of it, right? Like, don't just give it away to somebody and hope somebody else is taking care of your data. Your data is your way of making money in this business. So let, let's just, like, run down some of my favorite my favorite bulls that everybody talks about and everybody knows. So 068, Fukazuri. So when we look up in our MS9 percentage, we hit about 100%. We'll hit around that 8, you know, it, and again, right, we have good cows on the bottom half. We have about an 80%, 100% of these carcasses that we know are going to hit a meat score of 9 on the Australian scale. Now, to get over a 9, that drops down to less than 82%, right? So, so the 9 is kind of where that's hanging around on 068, but here's the problem with 068. Your hanging weights are down. Your hanging weights are down, and and your fat, your, you know, your back fat, your rib fat are pretty pretty big like like you're you're sneaking up on there and then we had to convert all of our ribeye sizes to centimeters right centimeter squared actually but um we had to do that to be to be across the board you know and and those are the things that most people forget so here here's another weird one for you so so we had for, you know 068 and he does so well so we go to Iedemichi one by two and and you start looking at him on our list and, and only 80% of his carcasses ever hit MS9. And we have never had one hop up above a nine. And, and that in a way is, you know, he's going to give you a consistent carcass, but man, he's sure helping you out on your weight. He's sure helping you out on your ribeye size. Like we don't have small ribeyes if we use you to meet you one by two, but we sure as heck are not going to hit home runs on the marbling side. You know, and, and there's some weird bulls like 147, Ido, Ido Shugafuji, and I have had not as good luck with him, but I have a lot of data that we've collected over the little the last little bit. And and when you punch all the data in, he's got a 90%, about a 91% MS9 percentage. Like, we're going to hit that MS9 if he is fed to completion. 
Now, to get him over that, it's it's a challenge. Less than 69% of his carcasses that we have seen, right? And we're talking about 250-ish carcasses. Um, you know, it, it's down below that 69%. Like, like, so if you're pushing for some high meat, you know, some high IMFs, He's not your man, but he's sure going to give you a consistent carcass. You know, Ito Shogunami, he's, he's you know, we've been able to, to reference about 105 carcasses uh, between us and, and everybody that we've kind of got together to do this. And he's a 90, 98%er on it, on marbling score of 9 in, in the Australian world. And he bounces over a marbling score of 9 plus about 84% of the time. Here's the one that everybody, I don't understand why they love this bull so much, but it's a zero doy, you know, we've got a ton of data. I've seen, let me look at, let me look at the spreadsheet and it'll tell us we have got almost 400 carcasses worldwide, you know, and, and their average hanging weights around that 457 kilograms, um, their back fats around that 20 millimeters, their rib fat's around 17-ish. Uh, their EMA on ribeyes is around 82. So, but here's the part that I don't understand. So, Ida Shuganami, 98% nines, 84% nine pluses. Itra Zero Doi, 151. Everybody's favorite bull, and the semen seems to sell like hotcakes, and it's very expensive. He only has a 93% MS9 and an 85% MS9 plus. And here's the problem I have with that. I would rather use Ito Shogunami for a tenth the cost and get a 98% chance of having a 9, a nine an MS score 9, rather than having a 1% chance, an 85% chance of an MS 9+, plus, with only a 93% chance of an MS 9. And that could be a feeding issue, and it could be a time-on-feed issue, and it could be a few other things, because we can't control what other people are doing. But it surprises me that we are spending so much money on a 151 bull when Ido Shuganami is by far superior. Um, and that's the hard thing I have, right? And then you go down to bulls like Kikiyasu, um and and 146 like here's another prime example of some bulls that we can get a hold of at a reasonable price that are under underused and and for for a reason right so both both 146 and 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 kikiyasu 400 here's the problem i know that almost all of my carcasses are going to be in ms9 we have them at 98 and some change on ms9s but they drop off so quickly to 60% for 147 and 50% on, on 400 on, on Kikiyasu. So here's my problem though. I would rather have most of my animals meet an MS9 than fight with a, a bull like like Itomichi 1x2 or Itohana and never get, you know, I, I'm losing my MS9s to get a couple more MS9 pluses and I can't make enough money with the two extra MS9 pluses as I can with the MS9s. I would rather have an MS9 and sell that carcass and know what I'm getting than an MS9 plus and have to, you know, I get one extra one, but does that cover the amount of animals that I didn't get MS9 on? And then that's hard for me, right? I get into these rants a little bit, but, you know, I've got 51 carcasses in this thing on 003, and he's 96% MS9 and, 80, 90, and 84% MS9+. Plus, and that makes sense to me. That's the bull I want. I want the one that has the most consistent animals that are 9% 
and MS9 Plus. So if I have to give up a few percentage points for the Plus, but get more on the front side, I love it. You know, we've got around 114 carcasses in, you know, that we've been able to gather information on from Michifuku. Michifuku is a 96 percenter on his MS9s. He does a great job. But he's an 80 percenter on his MS9 Pluses, so he's a good safe bull. I love the fact that he's a safe bull for me to use, and I know what I'm going to get. Yasufuku Jr. is the same way. You know, we've got about 100 carcasses that we've been able to collect that on. Not only the ones that we've raised, but other people. And, and this is a worldwide set, right? So we're getting stuff from New Zealand. We're getting stuff from Australia. We're getting stuff from a, a, a couple guys we've met in the Philippines, a couple guys in South Africa, a couple guys in Europe, right? So, so these numbers, we're compiling them from all over the world and the interesting thing about Yasufuku Jr. is is he has been a 98% MS9 percentage wise and then when you go to his MS9 plus we're well over 94% you know we're at that 94.6.7 and, and we're kind of weird we go down to two you know percentage plus two tenths and and, and well, two decimal points, sorry, not two tenths, uh, but two decimal points. So we have, you know, all these numbers come in like 94.67%, right? And those are the things that we find important for us to know which lines we need to stay within. You know, you look at Yasufuku Jr. and, and then you look at Kosin. So we have about 50 carcasses from Kosin and, and we're getting more and more every day because people are starting to use him more often. He's in the mid-90s for, for nine pluses. But here's the weird thing about we found with with Kosin. It, he may not have as high as his brother Yasufuku Jr. in ninety per, in percentile. But we have found that he has a high one of the highest percentiles of nine plus carcasses. And that's weird too because he's making some not as good on the front half but really, really good ones on the back. And then we're going to look more into it. We don't have enough carcasses for true data set. 50 carcasses doesn't do it for me. I like to have 100. It gives us a good carcass data set. And then we can start going through and and really knowing what this bull's going to do. I tell people all the time, I go, if I can have 100 carcasses, I can give you a pretty good idea what we're going to get. But under 100 doesn't give me the greatest data set that, that we can use. And that's okay, right? Like, that's, that's part of learning. It's part of us building this, this website. And, and it's part of us building the ability through not only owning our cattle, but owning, you know, being able to be at the feedlot and manage, you know, be able to manage what they're being fed, but being able to have the, the butcher shop and the connections I've made through there. You know, and that's the things that, you know, a lot of people don't understand. You know, and, and I want to give you an example. So I have very good confidence in in over, you know, 100. But I have really good confidence in like 325, like we have for 151. Or 350-ish that we have for Ito Shugafuji, or the 390 we have for Ito Shuganami. Those bulls have given us plenty of data so that we can feel extremely comfortable at saying, yes, these are what we have. The Australian breed plan, they, they look into this and, and they give trait leaders from it. And I think that's interesting. Um, they do have an opportunity to get more animals killed than anyone else. And I think that that's been a huge deal for a lot of folks. And it is what it is. And, and I tell people that all the time. You cannot put lipstick on a pig. If, if an animal is going to be a good animal, it's going to come out with his children. 
One of the ones that throw me off the most is Kitty Jr. So we get over to Kitty Jr. and he is the smallest hanging weight you will ever see in most Wagyu. I, I won't say ever. I, I will. I will say he's, he produces some of the smaller carcasses I've ever had the pleasure of seeing. And and the butcher shop has had the pleasure of handling. You're talking hanging weights that are around that eight to 900 pounds, but here's the deal. I have only seen out of the 25 that we have done, one carcass that wouldn't make MS9 on, on, on the Australian scale. One in 25. Most of them have been 9+, plus, but they're so small, and the ribeyes are not quite the shape I like. And those are the things that once we figure out how to breed cattle that we need to start delving into is, is this a pretty carcass? I've had chefs say that they do not like that ribeye shape, and they will not buy it. It might be the most beautiful thing you've seen, or the best animal that you've ever produced. But here's the scary part to me whoever you're selling it to has to be happy too because you're you're selling these for quite a lot of money and we need to be able to make them happy so you know i want to leave you with with this you know early early breedings you know you've got to make sure that they're matched well and a lot of guys are doing it a different a few different ways right so if you're going to be the guy that's like, okay, I'm going to take what he says and I'm going to go look around and I'm going to manage. I hope you go look around. Please go look around. But but I'm going to go and I'm going to go and find the animals that are going to work for me, which is what you should do. Like you're, you should go find the animals that work for you. And when you figure this out, I want you to then start killing animals. Like, okay, I've given myself the best the best opportunity to be successful. Now I'm going to take that opportunity and I'm going to use it um, the best way I can. So one of the ways, we do not do this, I will tell you right now, but a lot of new breeders have found great success with the 1616 analysts. And, and I'm not sure who created this or where it came from, but I think that it's a good thing. Um, so kind of how it works is you're going to have uh, four groups. Group A, B, C, and D. Your group A are going to be your frame and growth and your ca- your calf raisers. Your group B are going to be marbled but smaller framed. Your group C is going to be your frame, your milk, and your calf raising. And then your group D is your marblers with medium to large frames. And I want you to think about it like a circle. So you're going to group breed A to B and then have a baby. So you're going to take that baby and breed it to C. And then you're going to take that baby and breed it to group D. And then you're going to continue to do this in a circle and it'll keep your inbreeding coefficients down. It not only will bring your inbreeding coefficients down, but it'll give you the ability to have some very, very nice cattle that are, that are going to marble okay and well, depending on the sires that you've chosen. Because there's numerous sires within each of these groups, right? So like group A, they're usually large size. They usually have great maternal strengths and they're and they're they're a, mar, a moderate marbling sire. You know, and, and those those are those are good animals to have. Like I try to explain that. So die seven is, is a prime example of this this bull. 
you know, you start getting into the Shemaines and the Fugiyoshis and, and this lion exhibits these great maternal traits and they're, and they're, they're great for it. Itohana two, Itomichi one by two, Itomaka O two, Itohana Fuji, um, Ito Sugar Fuji 147, uh, Ichizero Doi falls into this at 150, you know, 151, and Kanahama Fuji. Like those are your Group A bulls. So then you're going to turn around and breed these Group A bulls to 100% or or high Tajima content bulls, and these are going to be your B sires. Yasufuku is the most celebrated of these sires. So in today's world, we breed to you know Fukazura, 068, Kikiyatsu. 003, Michifuku, and Yasufuku Jr. and Kosen. Those are the bulls in your group B, and you breed group A to group B and have a calf. And then you're going to take those bulls and go to group C. And and this is where it gets a little convoluted. So the Tatori Prefecture, um, the Kadekas, the Ichios, the Hanas, um, those are kind of what you're looking for. And Dai Hiroshugi is a Tatori Prefecture bull from from from. Kadaka, and and he is the poster child for this group C, and and mainly because he was used in Japan so heavily. And how do we get this bull? Well, 001 is your way to get this bull, and and a lot of people don't understand that. But in my opinion, if you're going to follow this, you have to find some some Hiroshigiatsu, 001, or you will not be able to do this very effectively. Or one of his sons, right? But this is where you get these. This is where you find uh, your C groups. And and I truly believe the C groups are the hardest to find. You know, Kenichi Ono has a beautiful picture of Dai 20. And, and if you ever see any pictures of 001, they're very, very similar. And when you really look at 001, he's going to give you that huge 200, 400, 600 and mature weight. But he is not going to give you that fine marbling that we're looking for. So once we've bred your A and B and had a calf and we bred it back to, to group C, which, which in my opinion, right, this is just me talking here, 001 is that group C. Like one of his descendants, something that he's bred, that is the group C. So then you're going to take that group C and you're going to breed it to group D. And this is where the Shuganamis come in. Um, group, you know, these group D animals, um, they're... They've got to be pretty special. Um, and the reason is, is they not only have to be large frame, but they have to be high marbling. So if you're going to do this, you have to have not only an animal that is, you know, bigger in frame, but an actual marbling, you know, bull. And, th and there's only, and again, there's only one, in my opinion, that fits this mold. And that's TF-148, Ido Shuganami. There are some out there that'll say Haruki 2 fits into this mold too. I haven't done enough work with Haruki 2. I do like, you know, Michifuku, um, but I haven't done enough work with him to, to say yes. And, you know, from the people that have told me, I, I believe it. I believe that Haruki 2 could fit into this. Um, I know in Australia they, they've put a lot of Haruki 2 animals in the feedlot and they've had great success with them. So, you know, if you go by this this breed's plan as a young breeder, I think that you can't go wrong. I think that you'll you'll be able to keep everything nice and clean. Um, this is kind of how they came about, to, you know, to get bulls. You know, if you really start digging into pedigrees like Ido Shuganami Jr. in Australia by Mayura, 
and Sumo Michifuku 154, you know, Coats Eater Shogunami G113. Like, like this is how they came about to get it. They followed a rotational breeding program, and I think that there's great value in it. Um, we tend to not use, um, I guess, I like to use Ido Shogunami twice. I use him in B and D, but that's just because I like the bulls so much. I do use Michifuku, I use 003, I use Yasufuku Jr., and I use Kiyatsu and, and 068, but I really sometimes do do two large group d's so that's kind of what i'm gonna leave you with today i hope you guys enjoyed this brief history a little bit of rotational feeding a little bit of information from the butcher side of things but the biggest thing i want you to take away today is you have to find a program that works for you next week we're going to talk a little bit about you know volatile acids and things like that and we'll see how that comes up but I'm going to let you go today. Thanks for listening to another episode of What's New in Wagyu. My buddy Jake said, hey, it's spring break. So I picked him up in my truck. We rolled into town and there we found a cantina and sorority bus I started trading my lines with a tall blonde haired Kappa Delta She said, boy, what school are you from? Said, I'd be happy to tell you I'm from the dirt road boys and I believe With campfires, guitars and river swings Got the good life down And if you hang around We could get a little dust on that collar Cause I'm a genuine Certified dirt road scholar Graduated the top of the school of hard knocks Passed the bar anytime I ain't thirsty our country club's exclusive tuna, but a fishing pole will come in handy. Nah, you ain't really lived, you get chill bumps from a coyote cry. Or a fine dine till you've cooked on a mountain, flattening bugs with candlelight. Now I'm from the dirt road, boys, and Ivy League. Campfires, guitars, and river swings. Good life down And if you hang around We could get a little dust on that call Cause I'm a genuine Certified dirt road scholar Fires, guitars, and river swings Got the good life down And if you hang around We could get a little dust on that collar Cause I'm a alumni certified Give you a country time Love to treat you right Wrapped in a blanket tie Sing you to sleep at night Dirt road